1: episode 110 of the Keith Law Show. I am your host, Keith Law. You can find me on Twitter for now at Keith Law. I'm on a bunch of other sites. We'll see if any of them goes anywhere. If you are on Facebook, the Facebook. I am at Keith Law Writer. If you're on Instagram, I'm at Mr. Mr. Keith Law, where I posted a bunch of board game pictures. I was at PAX Unplugged, the great board game convention held right near me in Philadelphia this weekend. Still got a couple more pictures to throw up on. They're all on my story. So a few of them might be gone. If you're looking for anything else, shoot me a note, leave a comment, etc., etc. Very excited today to be joined by a longtime reader of mine who actually tweeted at me after I interviewed Jess Gross on my last podcast episode and mentioned he was a reader of mine. He happened to have a new book out. It's Scott Hershewitz professor, Scott Hershewitz. His book is called Nasty, Brutish, and Short Adventures in Philosophy with my kids. I loved it and strongly suggest you check it out. Or if you're looking for a Christmas or a holiday gift for somebody, I think it'd be great for lots of different people, particularly people with any kind of interest in philosophy or just in laughing. In the meantime, I am, as we speak, responding to major trades and signings as they happen. I am just took a break from writing up the Phillies deal with Trey Turner to record this podcast. I wrote up the Mets deal with Justin Verlander earlier today. That's already posted for Subscribers to the Athletic. I read something about Jacob deGrom's deal with the Rangers on Friday night. That is also up for Subscribers to the Athletic. I will continue doing so. so by the time this podcast is live, hopefully uh, the Turner piece will be up, and I will just keep writing up these deals as they happen any significant trade particularly if there's a prospect any signing of a free agent that involves some changing teams i don't usually do re-signings because there isn't that much to say but keep an eye out for those to continue this week as the winter meetings are taking place uh, i'm actually heading out on tuesday not on monday and uh, we will continue writing while i'm out there and then when i get back because that's what they pay me for I also did, uh, as I said, I went to PAX Unplugged. I will have later this week a write-up of everything I saw or played, really, at PAX Unplugged. I played a ton of games and also have another review filed for a game called Lacrimosa, which is a heavier, more complex game uh, that I actually really liked and did play at PAX Unplugged as well. It is a great convention. If you're into board games and want to just try a bunch of stuff, it is Uh, the best convention I've ever been to for just doing that, for just spending a couple of days walking around and trying lots of new games that you've never seen before. So I enjoy that greatly. And finally, for folks who follow me for any of the uh, not baseball, not board game stuff, there's a couple of you out there, I think. But I will do my regular year-end music content probably the week of December 19th. I do that later than most other sites because some acts still release singles. Um, It's not a lot of albums of note released in December. But often we get a couple of new songs, and I, I like to try to wait. Also, it's kind of a quieter period the week before the actual holiday break. Usually is quieter, uh, particularly on the baseball front. And by that point, I've done, say, my year-end board game content, which will probably appear mostly the week of the 12th. My year-end post for Paste will appear the week of the 12th. And then at that point, we'll I'll have be back to a lot of movie content, I think, and a lot of uh, uh, book reviews and other stuff. That's all on my personal site, The Dish, at Meadowparty.com/blog guest today is professor scott Hershowitz. He is the author of a wonderful and very funny new book called nasty brutish and short adventures in philosophy with my kids he is also the director of the law and ethics program and professor of law and philosophy at the university of michigan go blue i guess i'm
2: a have- i'm a georgia fan so so ah. I, I, you know, I, I grew up in atlanta i went to the university of georgia so go blue but really go dogs Go dogs, yes. <laughs>
1: you can also find Scott on Twitter, as long as Twitter exists at S Hershowitz, H E R S H O V I T Z. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thank you for having me. Terrific to be here.
1: So, I came into this book. Um, you tweeted at me, actually. I wasn't familiar with the book, but I also came into this book with very, very little knowledge of actual philosophy. Never took a philosophy class, took some classes that were adjacent, but they were more about. You know, political philosophy or economic philosophy. So I found really interesting is this is sort of what I at least think of as more traditional or sort of middle of the road philosophy um, in that you sprinkle this throughout the book without getting extremely academic. So, you know, one thing I like to ask, especially when I read nonfiction authors is, was that kind of the goal of the book? Did I sort of get the what from the book, which you were hoping readers would get from the book?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the book really has two aims. One is, I'd like for people to recognize that there's something super cool about the kids in their lives, whether they're parents or grandparents or teachers or aunts or uncles or neighbors, that their kids are curious and clever thinkers and they're asking some of the deepest questions people can ask and that they're really fun to engage with about those questions. But then also... I wrote the book because I want to help adultery capture some of the wonder they had as kids. And I just realized um, through my teaching, I just found myself telling stories about my kids all the time as a way of getting conversations going in my philosophy classes. And, and I realized, Oh, you know, um, you know, like I'll give you an example. We would, um, you know, I teach in a law school. uh, So I talk about punishment a lot and uh, you know, I assign, you know, some abstract philosophy from you know throughout history about the nature of punishment, and the justifications for it. But if I walk into my classroom and I say, "Hey, let me tell you about something that one of my kids did last night," and you know, like, how would you have responded? Would you give him a time out? Would you would you do something worse? Would you let it go? Would you just talk to him? What 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 should we be as parents trying to accomplish? My classroom would come alive. People just love to talk about kids, and then it opened it opened a window into all of the more serious issues that philosophers are wrestling with so i really do hope that um like the book covers a lot of ground um you know issues about rights and responsibility authority sex gender race but then also just like questions about the nature of the universe how big is it and what can we know about it and so i hope it will serve as like an introduction to philosophy for people that that haven't encountered it much before
1: One thing that kept coming to mind as I was reading the book, too, because my own daughter is 16. I have a stepdaughter, two stepdaughters, but one of them is currently in fourth grade. And you hear about from time to time the so-called fourth grade slump, which is where kids tend to the portion of their brain that makes them more aware of what other people are thinking of them and also increases their own little level of inhibition starts to come in and suddenly they're just more conscious about the things they say or the artwork they do or mistakes they might make. And obviously I've been through that, I guess, sort of one and a half times so far, and I'll go through it a bit more, but it seemed like a lot of this is, Hey, but before that point, the stuff kids say, because they're so unrestricted in what they think and particularly I think even more so it's the, what they think coming just basically directly out of their mouths. I, I think we have a quote, we have a doc in Google doc, my wife and I with what my younger stepdaughter says, because her one-liners are just amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes like just things you wouldn't think of as even adult sentences. The first one in the document is why are there even windows in our lives? And that's not particularly deep philosophy, but she has this thing thing about windows. And it's like, yeah, that's not a sentence that would ever have just come into my brain. And she has deeper thoughts and then she has sort of ridiculous thoughts, but it's all that age group, right? Once they get to nine, 10, 11, somewhere in there in that portion of the brain developed, I think that's the, part of the prefrontal cortex. And I don't know a lot about neurology, but anyway, once that part develops, this goes away. And it seems like so much of this book is capturing, especially your kids. I don't know how old they are now, but in this book, so much of them is before that age. And they would just say stuff and then you could engage in this sort of dialectic with them. um, Of course, they don't realize you're just talking to them and draw more of these really interesting thoughts or insights or, or just further questions out of them.
2: Yeah, so we're going through that transition too. Um, the book, as you say, is mostly about my kids when they were little. Rex, the older mm-hmm. one, is thirteen now, and Hank is 10. Oh. And um, you know, the the research shows that say between the ages of three and eight, when kids start to really um be able to have conversations up until about fourth grade, they're spontaneously interested in philosophical questions and uh, and they um, they share them. As you say, they're, they're kind of unfiltered. I really think there's sort of two advantages that little kids have as philosophers, even over adults, even over professional philosophers. One is they're really confused about the world, right? They've just arrived, not knowing much about anything. They don't know what the standard explanations of things are. They don't know what adults take for granted or what adults don't think are questions worth spending time on. So they just think through the questions that they have and they share them with others. Like the second component of this is, they're not like, you know, I like to say they're not worried about being silly because silly is the business they're in. Um, they're not worried about <laughs> being wrong. They're wrong all the time. And it is, you know, I don't know whether I don't know the neurology either, but it is around this this time when um, children start to. um to become aware that other people like they have this like theories of other minds that other other people are forming views of them and especially as we've noticed as our older one has moved into middle school like you know the kids also want to manage other people's views of them and so you know i think they're probably still having philosophical questions philosophical thoughts um but they're just less um less quick to share them because they don't want to seem silly they don't want to be wrong about things. They don't want to be the person in the room who who doesn't know what something is or what something means.
1: One of the philosophical discussions that comes up multiple times in the book that I particularly enjoyed is the idea that we're all living in a simulation, which I don't, I never had these conversations with any of the kids. I guess I could with the youngest now. I might as well take advantage. I got a few more years before she's, because she's the one who's going to just run the whole household by the time she's nine. But this idea that I'll, I'll let you explain what the idea is behind this, but the, the way your kids responded to and, and particularly the way you're able to use that to launch off into multiple other discussions all the way down to the final chapter where you talk about the question of is there a God um, was particularly fascinating, particularly interesting to me as somebody who just knows the idea from a very surface level and has never really explored it very much because I'm kind of of the view that if we're living in a simulation, I'm fine not knowing about it.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's ultimately the view that that uh, my older son Rex has too. But the conversation started actually with a kind of related worry um, that lots of people have had throughout history. Rex had it when he was four. We were um, having dinner one night and he said, I wonder if I'm dreaming my entire life. Well, um, you know, we most famously associate the possibility that maybe everything is a dream with Descartes, but actually my favorite formulation comes from this 2,000-year-old Taoist text called the Zhuangzi, um, and it says, one day Zhuangzi uh, dreamed he was a butterfly floating and flitting about, but then he woke up. And uh, he was solid, unmistakable Zhang Zhu again. But he wondered whether he was Zhang Zhu, dreamed he was a butterfly, or a butterfly who was dreaming he was Zhang Zhu. And so that sort of sets sets me off on an expedition with both of my expedition with both of my kids, trying to figure out can we know anything about the world? But maybe, can we even know what's happening right now that you and I are on a Zoom call or does the possibility that we're dreaming it or being in the early versions of this uh, Descartes idea being deceived, maybe we're being deceived by an evil demon and just thinking that this is what's happening. Well, this sort of gets updated in the computer age, right? To the thought that, well, maybe um, our world isn't um, real or as real as a world could be, maybe we live inside a computer simulation. And there's a philosopher at Oxford, Nick Bostrom, who offered this very famous argument not to establish that we are living in a computer uh, computer simulation, but he thought you have to believe one of three things. You have to believe either that it's not possible to simulate worlds like ours, or you have to believe that it's possible, but people won't choose to do it very much, Or you should think it's highly likely that we're in a simulated world, because if it's possible and people do it a lot, there's going to be more simulated worlds than there are actual worlds. And we should imagine that we're in a simulated one. I think there's like I have concerns about that argument. Um, I, I think it may not be possible to have to simulate a world of consciousness. I don't think we know yet. I think even if it's possible, the energy demands might be extreme. So the takeaway shouldn't be. Decide that you're living in uh, in a simulated world, but um, or, or even that or even that you think it's highly likely. But it's it's worth p- pondering over um, uh, the significance. You know, one one issue you raise is you know, would the creators of the simulation are they gods relative to us? Um, but then also, I think your question is really interesting one. Should we care at all? Um, and, and Rex gave, you know, back on the dream skepticism for a moment, one day, um, Rex, I thought did a really great job of putting it perspective. He and I would try and figure out over the years, is there any way he could establish that he's not dreaming? And one day as we were walking home from school, he was in second grade. He said to me, um, it, it, um, it'd be really weird if you and I were having the same dream and we have to be having the same dream because we're having a conversation with each other. And I said, I don't know, buddy, maybe I'm not real. Maybe I'm just a character in your dream. And you could see, and I kind of like blew a gasket in his head and he was thinking (laughs) this through and he asked about his friends and I said, they could just be characters too. And then we turned the corner. My wife, Julia, just arrived home with Hank and Rex pointed at her and said, what about mommy? And I said, she could just be a character in your dream too. And he said, then I don't want to wake up, which is... Absolutely the sweetest moment ever of Rex. Bittersweet for me because it revealed my place in the hierarchy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Any of the talk of the of the simulation stuff too, I know most people will, especially, I mean, I'm the right age, will think of the Matrix. I keep coming back to the Simpsons sketch, which I think is a treehouse of horror where Lisa ends up creating life in like a Petri dish or something in her room. And the, you know, she looks down and she sees someone nailing something to a door and she goes, I've created Lutherans. (laughs) I I will never not default to that when it comes to the simulation talk, even though I should, I'm not a big fan of The Matrix to begin with, but I'm of the right age to think, oh, well, that's what this is. It's certainly a better way to explain it to people that that's kind of what The Matrix is. But for whatever reason, that's it's The Simpsons. The, Sim- I, the Early Simpsons seems to be the default the default touch point for a lot of my thinking and references.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, one thing I want to communicate to people is like pop culture can be a rich source of, of philosophy. And mm-hmm. The Simpsons is, you know, up there with Calvin and Hobbes near the top, top of that list.
1: Oh, absolutely! Um, Big Calvin and Hobbes fan too, as is my wife. Uh, Another thing that came up that came to mind during the book is, I obviously I write about sports, but in my chats and some other things, I've I've touched on many other topics. And I am extremely staunchly opposed to the death penalty, just ever for anybody, just period. And one of my go-to arguments has been the government is not in the vengeance business. That is essentially what that is. You are not. There is no. Need to kill someone when you can simply lock them up forever. If you believe that they are simply a danger to society by being out in society, you just lock them up. You know that's don't you, you know, without getting into the whole issue of the carceral state. We're talking about those sort of the worst of the worst offenders. That's the solution. If you want to put someone to death, it is to provide vengeance. It is, no, you are going beyond mere, you know, there's no restorative justice in that. And you get into that quite a bit without explicitly expressing the, the death penalty argument, but into this idea of the point of punishment. So can you go into that a little bit, which I also imagine kind of comes up, comes up with your kids, also comes up in your classroom work as well.
2: Yeah, for sure. I'm actually a little bit more, um, I think, sympathetic to revenge than, uh, than, than maybe many Many law professors, many philosophers. And part of the reason is it came out of a conversation I had that starts off one of the chapters in the book, a conversation I had with my younger son, Hank, um, when he uh he had the day off from school and we were playing. And and he tell he tells me that uh yesterday, Caden, a kid at school, called him a floofer doofer, uh, which he took to be a serious insult, I suppose, as as one would. And and mm-hmm. he said, Then the teacher came to talk to me. I said, Well, did she talk to Caden? And he said, No, she just talked to me. And I was like, the story didn't quite make sense. And I was trying to piece it together. And eventually I say, did you do something mean to Caden? Because he called you a floofer doofer? And uh, and the answer was yes. He would never tell me what he did. <laughs> like he kind of like the witness started to Stonewall at that point. And, but but I asked, I was like, did you think it was okay to do something mean to him? Because he said something mean to you. And Hank looked at me like I was the stupidest person in the world and said, yes, he called me a floofer doofer. And, <laughs> you know... I started wondering, it connected up with the kind of questions I have. I teach tort law, so responsibility for injuries and accidents. I teach this very old case where one guy spits on another and the court says we've got to have Really significant damages here, lest like the parties have to result have to resort to private violence, right, to settle their dispute. Actually, it talks about the necessity of private violence. And so I just wondered like, mm-hmm. what's going on with this court and what's going on with my son that they think is just absolutely obvious that the thing to do when somebody wrongs you is to strike back in some fashion. And, you know, so the chapter sort of works through this. What I end up thinking is going on with Hank, and what I think is going on in part when we punish people, is that we're we're vindicating victims, that we're saying, hey, it's not okay to treat me that way. I don't see myself as a flu for doofer or as somebody who can be called a flu for doofer, or I don't see myself as somebody who you're entitled to spit on. Um, you know, so I don't see um, you is above me and entitled to treat me that way. In fact, I see myself as an equal to you. So if you've called me a for doofer I get to say something mean back. Or if you've spit on me, I can spit on you. Now, I, I want to say, like, I don't think that we should take violent revenge or that we should spit on people who spit on us. But I think it's important to think about what are people getting out of it? Right? What are they seeking? And if they're seeking something we think is important, and I do think vindication for people that have suffered wrongdoing is important, then the question is, what are other ways that we might be able to provide that without um, putting them to the choice of responding violently? I think that's what this court is getting at. They're saying, here's something else we can do. We don't need you to strike back at the person who spits on you because we can make that person pay money, right? We can have your back. We can say, we condemn this and we're going to make him pay for what he did, and I think something similar is happening through criminal processes, especially for crimes that have victims, that punishing the wrongdoer is a way of supporting the victim. Um, and uh, and like you, I have a lot of um reluctance about the death penalty. Um, I think for the reason you articulate that, it feels to me like um there are alternatives um that um will accomplish a lot in the way of vindicating victims. Um, without sort of reducing ourselves to the level of barbarism involved in putting people to death.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right.
1: Another topic that uh, you address in the book that's, I guess, a little more salient to my day job, at least, although we haven't really run into this so much in the baseball world. But you have a chapter it's just called Sex, Gender and Sports, where you talk quite a bit. It's very, it's extremely timely. It feels like it's more timely now, even than when you were probably writing the book, too. About this, I sort of say, quote unquote, debate, because I'm obviously very sympathetic to one side here, about this idea, particularly of trans people participating in sports uh, in, you know, a trans woman playing in women's sports and whether that is right or wrong, but particularly whether it is fair. And yeah. that is a word I get very hung up on because that is a word as a parent and a step parent. I've heard the word fair enough times to just never hear it again for the rest of my life. Right. That is not fair. And I always hear it in the voice of Flea from the Big Lebowski, too. Right. And that's not fair. Yeah. That to me is it is such a loaded and subjective word. So I would like you, obviously, I know your thoughts. So I'd like you to articulate a little bit about sort of how you frame that debate and a little bit, I guess, on where you land as well.
2: Sure. Um, this was one of my favorite chapters to work on in the book because I, I didn't mm-hmm. come into it um, really knowing how I would come out of it. Like, you know, I, I hadn't thought a lot about the issues involved and I, I got to read a lot and I got to learn a lot. And it actually just like to back up for a moment for me, it started with a kind of question about, um, why we should segregate sports, sports by sex or gender in the first place. So, um, I tell the story of Rex running in his first 5k. And, um, I think he, I think he started his, five, I, can't remember, I think it was second grade, maybe third grade. Um, a lot of his friends ran, and the kid who finished first um, was um, a girl in his class. And she she not only beat all the girls, she beat all the boys by at least a minute. And then the next year she extended her lead, right? Um, I think in the book I call her Susie because I was changing names. And the next year she Susie extended her lead um, to two minutes. Right. So, but, but as I point out, like there was still a boy who got a first place medal, right? Um, Because though there were, the kids were all running together. There were two separate races going on a race for the girl race for the girls and a race for the boys. And so the first question I had is just, well, um, Susie didn't need this help. She didn't need a segregated race in order to beat everyone. She could have beaten everyone in second grade and everyone in third grade. And maybe if they're running today, she still could. Um, But nevertheless, Right? Like that's probably an approach all the kids run together, which I think might be what we should do with little kids. It's probably an approach that has a limited shelf life. At some point, we would expect that some boys will um will pass Susie by, right? Um, just statistically, the tail end of men's athletic performance um, extends a little bit further than the tail end of women's athletic performance. And so one question you might ask is, um, you know,, uh, why women's sports? I think that's like a prelude to asking, about um, about who should be eligible to participate them. And one reason I loved working on this is because I, I got to learn about the work of just really phenomenal philosophers of sport. I think a lot of people don't even know this field exists, but <laughs> um, there's a philosopher uh, named Jane English who is a really talented amateur athlete who wrote about the need for women's sports. And she said, look, there's two kinds of benefits to participating in sports. There's what she called the basic benefits of sports and the scarce benefits of sports. The basic benefits of sports are like, health and um, skill development and just having fun. And she said, this should be available to everybody. Um, But the scarce benefits of sports, she said, are things like fame and fortune and finishing in first place. She said, not everybody can have that. But she thought it really important that women have um, equal opportunity to obtain these scarce benefits of sports. And she just made this observation about our society. We really value sports. right? And we celebrate athletes. And if there's no women's sports, right, then we'll reserve this kind of place of honor and prestige and wealth simply for men. So English thought no individual has a right to the scarce benefits of sports, but we need to arrange things such that women can claim an equal share of them. Um, and uh, and I thought that was a really um, uh, um, helpful argument. In um, thinking about why women's sports are important, and then come around to the to the question why uh, or or how it's a question that Rex raised one uh, one year when we were watching the World Cup, he asked if a trans woman could play women's sports, and we didn't know what the rules were. Um, uh, so we just started to think about it with him, and we thought the answer. Um, should be yes. But of course, a lot of people think the answer is no. They think it should be unfair. They they think it is unfair. Um, Mm -hmm. And they say things like um, that, um, you know, maybe having a body that has more testosterone or has had in the past more testosterone gives you a kind of leg up in the competition. And, um, you know, my thinking about this was really... um, shaped by a philosopher named veronica ivy who is um uh, a really phenomenal uh cyclist and um and is also a trans athlete and uh you know they point out that um in all athletic competitions people's bodies have different features right so when we think about like what makes michael phelps so extraordinary people talk about the proportions of his Arms to the rest, of, or to the rest of his body, and the size of his hands. Or if you look at the, um, if you look at the, um, the like the people in the high jump tend to be much taller mm-hmm. than people that aren't in the high jump. Um, or if you look at Usain Bolt, right? Like he certainly had extraordinary physical advantages over some of his competitors. And nobody says in relation to these physical differences, "Hey, we need to make sure that the other men get a chance to win." Right. Um, You know, so we got to cut Phelps or cut Usain Bolt out of (laughs) out of the race. Um, And uh, and we and we don't say that precisely because of what we learned from Jane English, that nobody has an entitlement to win or even to have an equal chance of winning. If you're racing Michael Phelps at the peak of his powers, God help you. You don't have much of a chance to win. And that's not a problem with fairness in the race. And so I should say just like um, uh, the science is actually really. Um, more muddled than people might guess. There's a book called Testosterone, a Biography that sort of Mm -hmm. sets it all out. And it's really unclear um, to what extent um, uh, trans athletes might, in some contexts, have an advantage. I think probably much fewer than people might think. But even if there is some kind of biological advantage, I'm not sure that we should see it as a mark of unfairness. And then there's the last thing I'd say about this is, um, you know, if we want to be as inclusive and as welcoming as possible in our society and to help people live lives that feel authentic rather than forced, um, I think that um, that being inclusive is is in general the right thing to do. And there's nothing about unfairness in the sports context that pushes me off that judgment.
1: I keep picturing some sort of Harrison Bergeron type race, right. Where we've got Usain Bolt, he's allowed to run, but he's got weights around his ankles, right. To yeah. slow him down. Now it's fair. Now it's fair for everybody. And of course, nobody wants that. And so when you start getting into this fairness, I mean, I understand that's like a reductio ad absurdum, but it's like, that's where you end up. If you, you know, I th- pursue this fairness forever.
2: I think for amateur athletes, for rec leagues, like the value of the activity really might depend on being in a, in an environment where you can be competitive. So like I want yeah. a handicap for golf or a grade for tennis. Otherwise this just isn't fun for me, but elite athletes are doing something entirely different and none of them have a right to, to be competitive or to have a chance to win. I'm curious if you think
1: this parts of this argument extend into just one of the side interests of mine, which is um, the Academy Awards specifically in movie awards in general, where just about all of the major awards with i think the notable exception of the gotham awards which are just for independent film but they all segregate uh acting categories into best actor or best lead supporting and best actress the gotham awards has simply gone to one award for outstanding lead performance and one award for outstanding supporting performance and i'm very much of two minds i mean part of this you know the Argument. I mean, I think there's an inherent argument that women are simply lesser, and that is why we had to give them their own nice little, you know, pet on the head category. Also, that this excludes anybody who does not identify as either male or female. But on the other hand, if we simply go to one category, do we end up with fewer performances by non men? honored and recognized because here there is not the argument of some sort of inherent genetic or physical advantage from people who were assigned one gender at birth and are now a different gender. It is simply about, my understanding is simply about recognizing women independently and making sure that they are not completely overlooked in a category in a in a single category that might end up dominated by men.
2: Yeah, so I think these questions can be um, can be really hard. Um, in part like and in, and they're interesting in a way, because if we had a truly equal society, then mm-hmm. I think lots of the answers um would be clear. And so we're we're trying to figure out in our unequal society what's the second best sort of solution. All right. So if we had a, a truly equal society where women's say skill in acting was as apt to be recognized and sell and as celebrated as men's skill in acting, then we could have um one award and, and know that it would, um, that it would be used to recognize the achievements of both men and women, and probably in equal measure, since as you say, we've got no reason to think that, uh, that Mm -hmm. acting ability is distributed in anything but equal measure. Um, but we don't live in that society. We live in that society that across a lot of terrains, athletics and, and acting among them, um, uh. Overlooks the achievements and abilities of women, and the question is, what's what's the best way we've? What's the best second best solution? Is is it um, having this this separate category to make sure that we do um, recognize and celebrate the achievements of women, or is it as it sounds like this award um, system is doing, um, collapsing things down in an effort to get us all to get to a place where we don't have to think of um, these things as separate that we can recognize um everyone's um achievements just through one category and i i think it's partly empirical i think it's the, partly the kind of thing you have to try out and see how it works and so if they discover that only men are winning the award then they might think well this was a step too fast um but i but i think that's i think that's different in some ways than the the athletic question um for the reasons that you we're observing that, um, you know, you know, I quote Serena Williams in the in the chapter um, describing how she thinks of men's and women's tennis as different sports um, uh, just because of the difference in in strength and speed. And she said if she played against the um, I think it was Andy Murray, she was drawing comparison with she said she she'd lose in short order really quickly. I'm really glad there's a world um, that we live in a world that um uh, provides a women's draw at Wimbledon, so we can appreciate the extraordinary brilliance of Serena Williams as as a tennis player. So I, I don't think that we may we may dream of a world where the acting categories are are not segregated. But I'm not sure that we should aspire to a world um, that doesn't have you know uh, sports set up in a way that give us a chance to to perceive everyone's excellence.
1: For the record, the Gotham Award for Outstanding Lead Performance, they've done it twice. They gave two, there were two winners last year one Olivia Coleman, one Frankie Faison, a man. And this year it was won by a woman, Daniel Deadweiler of Till. So I guess for at least so far, and of three, um, that seems to be working out. All right. Um, The last question I I wanted to ask you is um, sort of springing off, you do a chapter on language and particularly on foul language. And I am somebody who uh, grew up no longer identifies as Catholic. yeah, wasn't a whole lot of swearing in my house or coming out of my mouth growing up, even when a lot of peers were. And I was never terribly comfortable Now I've worked in sports for 20 years. So um, that's just part of the vernacular. Right. And that is I constantly say, you know, when I say a pitcher's got good shit, that's the technical term. Um, <laughs> I love that. And so, you know, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that chapter, but also to me, it is such a great. Launching point for having some of these conversations with kids because everyone in the, every kid in the single digit starts encountering words that are varying degrees of objectionable, and the conversations about what words are appropriate, what words are never appropriate, what words are appropriate only in certain contexts I think is one of the most universal things to. All parents, regardless of age, race, religion, economic status, et cetera, we're all going to go through that at some point, as well as understanding when we can and can't curse in front of our kids. I'll curse you know, casually, not at, but in front of my 16-year-old. I wouldn't do that in front of the younger ones.
2: Right. Yeah. So this was um, maybe the chapter that I had, the, uh, I had even more fun than the sports chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't originally planned to be part of the book. It was, you know, I kept... Mm-hmm. I kept producing drafts that had some bad language in it my editor kept editing some of it out as she would go through the chapters and then right around the time that we were like you know arguing over over just how many uh fucks I would get in this book um <laughs> uh you know my my older one uh, I I won't I won't spoil the story people should should buy the book and read it I, but mm-hmm. my older one yes. said something that revealed uh, it was wickedly funny and revealed that he had really mastered the art of swearing in a way that was totally (laughs) unanticipated to us. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it got me thinking about this issue that I've I've always been wondering about since I was a kid. It's just like, why are these words off limits? If we just like they're just sounds, if we just said them, then they wouldn't be bad. It's just, you know, it's like this weird sort of people believe that it's bad. So it's bad. It doesn't quite seem to add up in a way. And um, so the chapter starts with just an effort to think that through, through these conversations with my kids where I'm asking them, hey, why is it bad to say some words? And, you know, when is it OK to say bad words and when is it not? And I really think that um, that they play a kind of role. Maybe maybe they play many roles in our lives, but one role that rules about what you can say where play in our lives is that they Sort of mark some places off as special or more sacred or more serious, um, more suitable to certain kinds of activities. And I actually came to think it's really important to have rules like that. There's a difference between being in church and being at the mall, or um, being at synagogue or being in the street. And part of the way we mark that difference, we say, hey, this place is going to be special, is we have rules of decorum for being in that place. Maybe it's you take off your hat as you go into church, but it's also you're going to behave a little bit less crassly. There's words you're not going to say while you're there. And so, of course, because you say, I want my kids to sort of master these distinctions so they understand Mm -hmm. how to be in different kinds of places. But that doesn't mean I don't, you know, some parents, I think, overreact. They think I never want my kids to swear. And part of what was fun in writing this chapter is there's all this social science research about swearing and its positive Mm -hmm. social consequences, the way it helps build relationships, intimate relationships, the way it helps relieve... Uh, helps release people's stress. There's science that shows it's easier to endure painful experiences if you're allowed to swear during them than if you're not. And I think, you know, every kid discovers this on their own. They go into their room and they, they swear. Um, and, uh, and that helps them blow off steam. So I want my kids, um, you know, to, to be masters of swearing both, um, both, uh, you know, um, Uh, knowing when to do it and knowing uh, when not to do it. The last bit of the chapter, I'll just say, since, uh, you know, since, since it's a, uh, you know, primarily a baseball podcast is about slurs. And, um, and, you know, I think those are the words that are really taboo words that we um, for the Mm -hmm. most part ought not use at all. And so the second half of the chapter is an exploration of that. And then uh, in one of my um, conversations um, with Rex about slurs, he started asking about the names of sports teams, and I am <laughs> perhaps the biggest Atlanta Braves fan you will ever meet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I grew up in Atlanta, and I am you know uh, fiercely devoted to the team and love baseball. But I'll say, I sure wish they'd change their name. Um, I think the I think the time has come, and and they say they say they're um, they're honoring. Native Americans. But I don't think it's just a question about what they intend. I think it's a question about what the name and the imagery evoke. And um, they're they're tied too much to um, our pernicious history and derogatory ways of thinking about Native Americans. So I'm on a kick. Maybe you can join me in it. I think they, they should rename the team after something distinctively Atlantan. I'd like it to be called The Traffic.
1: Uh, <laughs> I've been caught in that traffic many times yeah. trying to see players, trying to do two players. I don't do that anymore. Trying to see two different games in one evening. I feel like oh, wow. 15 years ago, I might've been able to do that. Now you just can't. You're, oh, you try you go and to one high from, school. like the game.
2: Gwinnett team to
1: the down to Atlanta high- or Usually high school guys try to see two okay. high school guys, oh, got maybe it. both around the perimeter and think they're not that far apart in traffic terms though. They're like three <laughs> days apart. So it's
2: actually right. not, I've given
1: up. I've learned. Yeah. Right. I, I am mean,
2: enough the puns would be endless, experience. right. You know, there'd be traffic yes. on the bases on the bases. True. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's just too obvious. So hope, hopefully there's some, there's some baseball folks out there listening who can help make this happen. <laughs>
1: My guest today has been Professor Scott Hershovitz. He is the author of the wonderful book, Nasty, Brutish, and Short Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids, which I highly recommend. You can also follow him on Twitter at Hess Hershovitz, H-E-R-S-H-O-V-I-T-Z. Scott, thank you so much for joining me. This is a
2: blast from me. Thank you so much.
1: That's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining me. I should have at least one more episode before we break for the holidays, possibly two. That's really going to depend on my schedule as I uh, start work. I've already started work on the off-season prospects package. We don't have a run date for that yet, uh, so keep uh, keep an eye peeled. I will announce that as soon as I do have one. I'm shooting for late January-ish, but it really depends on other editorial schedules at The Athletic, and I just let them tell me when they need it by, and then I get it done. Finally, I did want to mention I'm uh, a bit delayed in sending out a new edition of this, but I do have an email newsletter. is free um, at tinyletter.com slash Keith Law. Um, please sign up there. It is probably the best place to keep track of everything that I've written, particularly with Twitter kind of teetering on the brink. Uh, I joke a bit about whether it's going to implode, but I think it's clear it's simply not the place that it used to be, which is very unfortunate. But I uh, will continue to post Links in lots of places, but I think the newsletter is probably going to remain the most reliable way to see everything that I've written and any podcasts that I've done as well. Thank you all so much for reading and so much for listening. Sorry about the gap between episodes, but I hope to be back again next week. Take care and stay safe.